a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This may seem like a strange way to start out, but uh, I have to tell you right up front, this program is not for everyone. You don't have to be this rich or this tall in order to uh, benefit from this show. But you do have to be serious about seeking after truth. And not just whatever I say or whatever I share with you, but actually actively going after the truth and not waiting for someone in authority to hand it to you like it was a birthday present. So if you're willing to uh, step up, Take charge of your life, be responsible for your own worldview, and think clearly and independently about what's going on around us. Well, then you found the right place. If, on the other hand, you would prefer just, you know, some comforting lies or accolades or reassurances that everything that's going on around us is totally normal and (laughs) that fire in the house, well, it's supposed to be that way. Yeah, you'll have to find something else. Nonetheless, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Got some great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis, and they include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Where to begin? I have so much good material to share with you today. I think I want to start with perhaps the most controversial and risky topic that that I can think of in our day. This would be a concise and compelling defense of the biological reality of men and women. Now, can you think back even five years ago and think, would, would this really have been such a controversial thing to suggest that, you know, there are really only uh, two genders, men and women, but that's where we find ourselves today. There are serious cultural battles raging around us because of this. So I love it when I come across a, a nice oasis of common sense. Annie Holmquist, who is the editor of intellectualtakeout.org, has just such an article, and she says, Trust the science. Skip the gender-neutral toys and clothes. She says, Stay-at-home father Jay Deitcher prided himself on blurring gender lines. That was a trait he tried very hard to pass on to his own young son. So he hid the kitty clothing that sported footballs. Instead, he gave his son a baby doll to push in a stroller on their walks. And then his two-year-old discovered tractors... And the gender-neutral charade was over. Deitcher writes, I had to make a choice. Buy him clothes with pictures of heavy machinery on them and make the kid happy or force him to wear shirts emblazoned with fuzzy animals to appease me. Now, Deitcher admits he fought it at first in trying to interest his son in other directions, but nothing worked. And finally, he gave in, letting his son immerse himself in the traditional boy world of machine-oriented clothing and toys. Now, isn't it interesting, Deitcher felt like he was a failure as he saw his attempt at gender-neutral parenting fall apart. And in the eyes of the pop culture that tries so hard to blur the lines between the sexes, demolishing so-called social constructs of gender roles, clothes, toys, and interests of children before they're fully aware of their surroundings, yeah, he, he did fail. But Annie Holmquist says he shouldn't take it personally. Unfortunately for him, his quest was always going to be an uphill battle because it's pretty hard to fight against the scientific facts of biology. And one of those facts is 
that there are biological differences between the sexes. And it's those differences, not crafted, politicized societal norms that drive little boys towards trucks and tractors and little girls towards dolls and other caregiving toys. Sex researcher and author Dr. Deborah So explains this in her book, The End of Gender. So writes, gender is dictated by prenatal hormone exposure, as opposed to coercive gender norms imposed upon infants the minute they exit the womb. Boys tend to choose mechanically interesting activities like playing with wheeled toys because they have higher levels of testosterone received while being formed in the womb. Girls, on the other hand, dealing with far less testosterone, are much more empathetic and gravitate towards socially engaging activities and occupations, such as those found in playing dolls or house. Now, so points out that these biological differences are also present in animals. Despite lacking socialization from their caregivers or other monkeys, young female monkeys will choose dolls and male monkeys will choose wheeled toys. Now, Annie Holmquist says the reason these biological sex differences are so important to understand is that politically correct pop culture has taught parents otherwise. Parents are told that it is of the utmost importance that children not be encouraged toward traditional gender roles and interests. So parents go to the other extreme, as Deicher did, giving their boys dolls and giving their girls the trucks. But as so explains, biology soon takes over, leaving parents confused as their, par- as their sons or daughters gleefully pursue gender-specific toys despite all the attempts to condition them otherwise. Now, Annie Holmquist writes, such confusion shouldn't be a surprise, however, because that's exactly what happens when parents listen to the cacophony of voices in the media, government, and society at large. In fact, C.S. Lewis described this as a tactic of the devil in his Screwtape Letters. Writing to his nephew Wormwood, the demon Screwtape encourages his protege to let his victim get caught up in the chatter going around so as to keep him from investigating the scientific facts. This is a quote from the book. But the best of all is to let him read no science, but to give him a a grand general idea that he knows it all and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember, you are there to fuddle him. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says the message for us today then is not to get fuddled, thinking that we'll be good parents if we just promote gender neutrality to our children. She says despite what our culture says, it's still perfectly fine to promote gender-specific toys and clothes to children. In fact, it's good. And the parents who do so are not stifling their child's identity. They're simply going along with the facts of biology and are bucking the chatter of a society that thinks it knows everything when it really knows nothing. So encourage your girls to be girls and your boys to be boys. Stop the confusion and start them thinking straight. I don't know. You know, I mean, I agree completely with everything she just said. And I think that might be one of the most controversial things I've shared on this program this week. Not because, wow, she's just flouting convention here and, you know, challenging everything that we know to be decent and true. Now, this is something far more revolutionary. What Annie Holmquist is doing is actually speaking the truth in a time where near universal deception and detachment from reality is becoming the norm. I mean, come on, not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, 
did the president not just announce a day before, or I guess just yesterday, that we will now have a ministry of truth? He didn't call it that. It's it's uh, more like an office that's there to, to deal with misinformation and disinformation. But you get the picture. There's a lot of effort and a lot of uh, money being spent to try to keep people from speaking the truth, acknowledging the truth, believing the truth, living the truth. And at some level, you got to ask yourself, why is that? I mean, it's not just a matter of is this some conspiracy from the smoke-filled room, or is, is there something more here? I think it really comes down to what Orwell had warned about with, you know, his depiction of totalitarianism in 1984. As if you control ideas, you can control how people think. You can control the way that they process all the information that, that tells them about the world and cause them to, to essentially create a mental prison for themselves. And I know that sounds like kind of a dark thing, but that seems to be exactly what, uh, you know, the people pushing this, this great reset mentality are all about. And it's not like we're without options, okay? So this is, this is you know, I, I'll put it this way. If letting your kid play with toys that are appropriate for his or her gender, if that's considered a revolutionary act, well, think about, you know, what about uh, growing a garden? That's a revolutionary act, too. What about uh, attending church? I don't know. It, what, what I see today versus what uh, we might have envisioned 10 or 15 years ago, I could easily see a day coming where, you know, an outward expression of religion is going to be outlawed. Why? Because it's not inclusive. I guess what we're being presented with here is an opportunity to find out a little bit more about ourselves, about our backbone, and most importantly, about just how deeply we believe what we believe. And I mean this stuff, the, the real core beliefs around which a person bases their life. I'm not going to do it today, but I have, uh, in an upcoming show, I'm going to share with you an exercise that uh, that I have done personally, and I've also I have a friend who did this, and I think he did it the best of anybody that, that I've seen. You sit down and you write out a list of these are the things that uh, that are my core values, my core beliefs. My friend's list was really comprehensive, and he had hit on a few things I hadn't even considered. But you'd be amazed what you learn about yourself when you do something like this. Again, it's a topic for a different show but something you can look forward to in the days ahead. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. Appreciate them being our sponsors today. If you are dealing with car accident injuries or perhaps neuropathy or maybe you're dealing with the pain of bulging herniated discs, just know that help is available. And this is particularly for my listeners in southern Utah. Dixie Chiropractic, which you can visit their website at DixieChiro.com, has a couple of intro specials that really would be worth your time. If you're dealing with bulging, bulging herniated discs, check out the $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. If you're dealing with neuropathy, here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Get the full details at DixieChiro.com when you make your appointment. 
let them know, hey, I'm checking you guys out because Brian was talking about you. He said you could help me. Well, if you're weary of walking on eggshells to avoid microaggressing against the woke, I want you to take heart. The social justice left is, uh, you know, very insistent, very aggressive. They are looking for a reason to fight. They're looking for a reason to confront and to drag you into their crusade and then accuse you of, you know, if you're not chanting in unison of, you know, being against whatever it is that they're for. It's kind of a weird uh, way. It's like a little self-fulfilling prophecy. But here's the good news. According to El Gato Malo, they're overplaying the same hand. And that which was fearful becomes but now, and that's how we win. So from the uh, Boricuato Gato substack, this is what El Gato Malo says. Liz makes the case here that it's disturbing to watch media and pundits hurl hallucinatory accusations of racism at anyone who would champion the idea of free speech. Now, they're referring to a, a tweet from Liz Wolf showing a picture of, is it Joy Reid and Elon Musk? And, and Liz tweets, it's really disturbing that prominent journalists can falsely accuse Elon Musk of being a racist, a white nationalist, motivated by white supremacy, and we largely just accept this as normal. I guess uh, Joy Reid from MSNBC had accused Elon Musk of bringing his apartheid-era South African worldview into uh, you know, his uh, desire to, to buy Twitter. And it is disturbing to see that, but here's what El Gallo... Elgato Malo, rather, has to say. Obviously, this is part and parcel to the standard left-wing tactic of cowing all opposition into silence by shrieking, racist, sexist, anti-trans, anti-fluffy bunny, or whatever other vicious, horrible phrase leaps from the febrile fever dreams of their overheated imaginations. Anyone who would allow free speech must be some sort of supremacist. Everyone knows we should control that which can be spoken. So this is a tactic that's as nasty and dishonest as it is knee-jerk and predictable. And El Gato Malo says, this is why I take the other side of Liz's argument. This isn't disturbing. It's actually wonderful. This is how we heal. And here's the reasoning. You only get to instill fear with do what I say or I'll call you the most terrible names I know so many times. And the truth of the matter is, it's things like this that has used them up. If it's normal, it's no longer scary. And that means the woke have lost their power. This entire persuasive base was the threat of calling you somethingist or getting you canceled. And now it's so overused that it's trite and meaningless. In other words, the the woke, the social justice warriors, they've gone to the well too many times and the well has run dry. Better It's actually inverting into a set of credentials that enhance status and standing. Making these people furious speaks well of you and having them call you racist just becomes harmless flack that proves you're over the target. Meanwhile, they expose their own intellectual vapidity by howling the same three epithets over and over, no matter what the subject or circumstance, like a lost golem digging its own grave ever deeper because it lacks any actual consciousness. This is how they become irrelevant. And Elgato Malo Malo says, let them, because this is how we win. They will defeat themselves. We need only stand back and watch the implosion of this facile and false edifice of doctrinal doggerel. 
Its foundations were never sound. And the shock and awe of its novelty is gone. This was a blitzkrieg attack relying on momentum and on overrun, but it has faltered. And their ammo is gone, their tactics clear. Those they would conquer and suppress are now awake and increasingly unafraid. Because the only thing scary about these people is the depth of their delusion. They were never the many. They were always a noisy, absurdist minority, casting a large shadow to overstate their pervasiveness and prowess. They just started to actually believe their own hype, and they've overplayed their hand, and they will cluck now and clamor like never before as they lose relevance. But none of it will matter. It's just a carnival of colicky babies. So their time is done. Their play is over. And each new ejaculation of outrage will only serve to further undermine their underpinnings. Each laughably predictable accusation of ism will only discredit the user and elevate the target. And it's going to be glorious. This is why free speech absolutism is so vital, because when you leave it alone, it heals itself. Remember, the cure for bad speech is more speech. The best way to marginalize hateful people is to let them reveal themselves. And censorship is always the greater evil. Now, Sun Tzu admonishes us, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. But El Gato Malo says, personally, I adhere to an older, perhaps wiser authority. Sun Mew, the art of purr, meme them until they cry, then make memes about them crying. <laughs> All right. So I may not uh, encourage you to cross the line into to open ridicule, but I will say that humor definitely has a way of conveying truths that uh, would otherwise just seem mean-spirited or just, you know, unhinged spittle-flinging. You know, if, if, you just, if you're just going for angry... That only is going to get you so far. Humor might actually make people stop and think about something. So from from that standpoint, yeah, memes definitely have their place. But I think I'm going to come down on the side of, uh, I think El Gato Malo is, is right in the sense that as unpleasant as it is to hear all these endless shriekings about this is racist, that's racist, that's sexist, this is oppressive, you're microaggressing because you asked me, you know, about my accent or where I'm from... That's, that's tough to deal with, and it almost always feels like it's a prelude to some kind of contention or some kind of a fight. But it's true. The more the irrational scream about injustice and accuse you of, not, or of, of being a part of that injustice because you're not chanting in unison with them, the more they reveal themselves for what they really are. And all you've got to be is uh, strong-willed enough to, to be willing to stand on your own. Let those names bounce off. Oh, what is it? I've got a... I saw this yesterday, and I've, I've, I've mentioned the name Andy Frisella before on this program again. I recommend him as a great source of clarity, but I, would, I, I preface that with, if you can't handle bad language, if, if somebody swearing like... Uh, like a sailor, is, is really off-putting to you, probably best you don't listen to him. If, on the other hand, you can shrug those words off or let them bounce off you to, to catch the underlying truth, wow. Andy's a guy who definitely is about as truthful a speaker as, as, as you're likely to encounter. And this is something that he said that just absolutely resonates with me. Be okay with being misunderstood. It'll free you. 
Now, that sucks, right? Somebody misunderstands me. What if they think I'm weird? What if they think I'm a kook? What if they think I'm racist? Let them. And be okay with it. I mean, this is the whole idea of of thinking clearly and independently and for yourself is you know who you are. You know what you stand for. That's your biggest opponent. Once you have won that battle with yourself to really know, you know, what you're about, you don't have to prove anything to anybody else. You can go on with peace in your heart and really be yourself regardless of what somebody might be calling you. So be okay with being misunderstood. It will free you. And right now, it's all about being free. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I got to tell you, I'm so proud to have SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com as one of my sponsors. And for my listeners in Southern Utah, you have such a great resource right there in your community, a family-owned business. It's been in operation continuously since 1984. Now, it has changed owners about three times over that period of time. But the original owner still works at the place. He still services the, the, the machines that they sell, even the machines that they don't sell. But bottom line is if you or someone you know wants to get into sewing, if you want to just get into a nice entry-level machine, they have machines starting at around $200. If you are serious about sewing or long-arm quilting or uh, buying a serger, whatever the case may be, I mean, they've got machines that will just blow your mind. And again, they service what they sell. They can train you to use your machine. Might be a great thing to have as a part of your personal self-reliance preps or just something fun, you know, great way to uh, create heritage pieces, you know, for your family to pass down for generations. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Click the link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You know, great stories stay with us and they help us remember what matters most. I wanted to share one of my favorites from Larry Reed, who's the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's the story of being honest when no one is looking. This is uh, from, from his book, Real Heroes. And he talks about a good Samaritan in Cambodia. This is, this is one of my all-time favorite stories that Larry Reed shares. And he's got a ton of them because this guy has seen and done a lot. Larry Reed writes, in 30 years of traveling to 81 countries, I've come across some pretty nasty governments and some darn good people. And he says, to be fair, I should acknowledge that I've also encountered some rotten people and a half-decent government or two. The ghastliest of all worlds is when you have rotten people running nasty governments, and that's a combination that's not in short supply. Indeed, he says, as Nobel laureate F.A. Hayek famously explained in The Road to Serfdom, the worst tend to rise to the top of all regimes. Yet another reason to keep government small in the first place, as if we needed another reason. The unscrupulous and the uninhibited, wrote Hayek, are likely to be more successful in any society in which government dominates life and the economy. That's precisely the kind of circumstances that elevates power over persuasion, force over cooperation, arrogance over humility, and corruption over honesty. And so because of this, Larry Reed says, I take special note when I encounter instances of good people working around in spite of, in opposition to, or simply without a helping hand from government. 
In today's dominant culture and climate, private initiative is frequently shortchanged or viewed with suspicion. In some quarters, private means unreliably compassionate, incorrigibly greedy, or hopelessly unplanned. And he says, we're overdue for a celebration of the good character many people exhibit when there's no fame or fortune in it, just the satisfaction that comes from knowing you've done the right thing. Now, he says, sadly, I can't give you the name of the person that I want to tell you about, and shame on me for that. He says, I spent a grand total of perhaps an hour with him in short increments as he gave me rides in his cyclo or rickshaw from one place to another in Nam Pen, Cambodia. This was in August 1989. Larry Reed says, when I was about to fly home to the United States, I gave him something without ever expecting he would do with it what I asked. I wish I'd had the presence of mind to ask for his name and contact information because in all the years since, I've wished for an opportunity to thank him. Now, Larry Reed says, I lived in Midland, Michigan at the time, and the area press, particularly the Midland Daily News and Saginaw News, featured stories about my upcoming visit to Southeast Asia. Local doctors donated medical supplies for me to take to a hospital in the Cambodian capital. A woman named Sharon from a local church saw the news story, and she called me and explained that a few years before, her church had helped Cambodian families who'd escaped from Khmer Rouge communists and resettled in mid-Michigan. Now, the family had moved on to other locations in the United States, but they stayed in touch with the friends they had made in Midland. He says, Sharon told me that she sent copies of the news stories to her Cambodian friends and her church had helped her, that her church had helped a few years before. Through Sharon, each family asked if I would take letters with cash enclosed to their desperately poor relatives in Cambodia. Now, when they sent anything through the mail, it usually didn't end up where it was supposed to, especially if cash was involved. So Larry says, I offered to do my best with no guarantees. See, the families who were in Phnom Penh would be relatively easy to locate, but the last family was many miles away in Batambang. That would have involved a train ride, some personal risk, and a lot of time that he didn't have. And he says, if I couldn't locate any of the families, I was advised not to bring the cash back home, but to give it to any poor person. Now, finding poor Cambodians in 1989, after the savagery the nation endured under the butchery of the Khmer Rouge a decade before, was like looking for fish in an aquarium. So when he realized he wasn't going to make it to Batambang, he says, I approached a man in tattered clothes in the hotel lobby. I'd seen him there a few times before. He always smiled and said hello and spoke enough English to carry on some short conversations. And Larry Reed says, I had a sense, an intuition perhaps, that he was a decent person. I have an envelope with this, with a letter and $200 in it intended for a very needy family in Batambang. Do you think you could get this to them? I asked. He replied in the affirmative. Keep $50 of it if you find them, I instructed. And we said goodbye. And he says, I assumed I would never hear anything of what became of either him or the money. And he says, I'm still pained to this day by the realization that without, without much thought, I had sold him short. So he was back, Larry's back home in Michigan several months later, and he received an excited phone call from Sharon, who told him the Cambodians in Virginia, whose family in Batam Bang, that last envelope was intended for, just received a letter from their loved ones back home. And then she read to him a couple of paragraphs from that letter. The final sentence read, thank you for the $200. Now, Larry Reed says that man whose name I'm unsure of and whose address I never secured had found his way to Batambang, not only did he not keep the $50 that I offered, he somehow found a way to pay for the train ride himself. 
And he asks, does that act of honesty tug at your heartstrings? And says, if it does, then you appreciate something the world desperately needs. Something that is indispensably crucial to a free and moral society. The man I trusted the money to was poor in material wealth, but rich in something more important. Larry Reed says, as I wrote in a recent book, Ravaged by Conflict, Corruption, and Tyranny, the world is starving for people of character. Indeed, as much as anything, it is on this matter that the fate of, the indiv- of individual liberty has always depended. A free society flourishes when people seek to be models of honor, honesty, and propriety at whatever the cost in material wealth, social status, or popularity. It descends into barbarism when they abandon what's right in favor of self-gratification at the expense of others. When lying, cheating, or stealing are winked at instead of shunned. And so he says, if you want to be free, if you want to live in a free society, you must assign top priority to raising the caliber of your character and learning from those who already have it in spades. If you do not govern yourself, you will be governed. Now, character means that there are no matters too small to handle the right way. It's been said that character is defined by what you do when no one is looking. Cutting corners because it doesn't matter much or because no one will notice still knocks your character down a notch and can become very easily a slippery slope. Now, he writes in this article about how he hopes to one day visit Cambodia again. And he says, I I have a very slim lead, you know, when I do visit that I might find the man I gave that letter and the $200 to. He says, I know it's a long shot. He may have moved away, he may have passed on, but he says, if I find him, it will be a thrill I'll never forget. I will embrace him as a brother, and I'm sure he understands that in my book, he is one real hero. I love that story. Because that one, the first time I heard it, I just thought, you know, he talks about if if this, this humble man's character and his honesty tugs at your heartstrings, and that tells you that you recognize something that the world really needs. And it really did. It, it hit me hard. It was like, man. Sometimes I, I start to lose faith in, in humankind. I know you just you spend about 20 minutes uh, perusing the headlines and trust me, <laughs> you'll feel your faith in humanity starting to slip and, and quickly if it doesn't just go right into free fall. But all it takes is just seeing one or two small examples of people who are living up to the goodness that we're capable of to remind me that there really are great people. And and here's, here's my point. There's a lot of negative going on right now. And sadly, I'm afraid I'm a source of a lot of that negative because I'm, I'm trying to sound the warning and also trying to encourage people, you know, get your, get your poop in a group. (laughs) Don't be, don't be caught unawares. But the most important thing that you and I can do right now that will have measurable impact on the world for the better is to get our own character in order. And I mean become a truly excellent person. Now this doesn't mean we're going to have set, we're not going to have setbacks or we're not going to fail. I do on a daily basis. But I keep trying because I know the closer I can get to living in accordance with what I know to be right, the greater the impact I'm going to have on the world around me and it works that way for all of us no matter where we happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining me today. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I want to recommend them to you, not because they're all that in a bag of chips, but just because it's a great opportunity to take a little bit deeper dive into some of the different issues and stories that are going on around us. And I promise to, to not to get you too bogged down in uh, here's here's another negative thing that happened. There's a lot of stuff that's going on that uh, that is very, very concerning. And, and I'll admit, there's times I wake up in the middle of the night going, hmm, wow. How do we talk about, you know, the impending economic difficulties? How do we talk about the prospect of nuclear war? How do we talk about, you know, just the, the injustices that are being done, the outright lying, the deception? That's daunting. But if you want to take a deeper dive and really understand these things because you're doing your own research, for which there is no substitute, those show notes are a great way to do it. Just go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, click on a day, whatever day, scroll down to the bottom of the show notes for that day, you'll see a big subscribe button, drop in your email, I'll take it from there. So being a clear and independent thinker, is more than just simply having all the answers and, you know, everybody wanting you on their side when you play Trivial Pursuit. It requires some humility. It requires the ability to admit you're wrong or even that I don't know about a particular subject. Now, I've got a great article here from uh, the Good Citizen Substack, A Fear of Blind Spots. And I'm just going to share a couple of excerpts here. This is, this is part of an exchange going back and forth with Winston Smith of the Escaping Mass Psychosis Substack. And this again, you want to take a deep dive into some real thought-provoking material? This is one I would strongly recommend. You can subscribe to the Good Citizen Substack, and, and you will find plenty to, to keep your mind occupied. But it's two people. These are... I'm going to call them intellectuals. I don't mean that as any kind of an epithet, but these are people who are thinking at a much deeper level about uh, how it is that so many people can be deceived and how can people be misled and what is it that, that leads us to, uh, to tie our perceptions to things that may or may not be true. And I really enjoyed how they, they approach the subject of blind spots, mainly because we all have blind spots. Yes, all of us. No matter how fair, no matter how kind and loving a person is, we all still have things that we just don't see because of our proximity to whatever. Now, that doesn't mean we're bad or that we're stupid. It just means that we all have them, which means we probably should take care. I mean, we look back at uh, at those who came before us, whether it's a couple of generations or many generations before, and it's clear There were some things about which they had blind spots. If they had them, then likely we do too. So, you know, I try to be a little bit kind in how I judge them for for trying to make things work in the world in which they were born, just as I'm, I'm hoping people will be kind to us someday for how we were doing our best under trying circumstances. But here's the key thing to remember about these blind spots. And again, this is from The Good Citizen. We never... we're never really dealing with a full picture of any one topic. Consciously, we might suspect this simply from not having a very satisfying array of tangible information from which to start the process of decision-making, but we each 
possess differing capabilities in terms of logical deduction or analytical reasoning. And and as as the, the these two individuals are, are going back and forth in their their essays and answering one another's questions, something that they both agree on is that you simply you simply can't produce or reproduce what was never captured. So um, neurologically, our senses can betray us in ways that we can't even fathom. Even if you're aware of those sensory deficits, there's still no way to fill in the missing information, those gaps. And what this does is it leaves us with a skewed sense of reality based on the limitations of our perception. The treachery of our own biases, plus all the social and experiment, experiential factors that uh, have been mentioned that might fall under the nurture category that need not get thrown out with the bathwater. We fall for we all fall for the illusion that what we see and what we know is the nature of things. Now, why is this important to understand? Because when you find yourself arguing with someone, when you find yourself locked in, you know, rhetorical combat with an individual, whether it's online or in person, it's not a simple cut and dried, well, of course they should see things the way that I see them, because, you know, this is how I see it. The bottom line is we all process things a little bit differently. We all process things slightly differently based upon our experiences. So you need a little bit of flexibility in allowing for how others might see things differently. And with that, I think, comes the, the, the most grown-up notion of all, and that is it's okay if someone disagrees with me. If someone doesn't believe what I believe, it's not my duty to force them to come over to my side. So we're all left with our own unique sense of reality based on incomplete evidence, and no matter what, we are all constantly encumbered by blind spots. Now, there's a term that he uses here called bug men, and, and this may sound like a really derogatory thing to say, but bug men refers to the average normie corporate slave consumer. This is the person who's infatuated with all the latest trinkets and gadgets, incapable of skepticism or critical thinking, passively accepting what they're told and passing it off as truth. Parroting might be another way to describe that. Possessing great tendency to conform, submit, obey. Bug men. That's, uh, that's the passive consumer of everything obedient conformist lacking curiosity. And one of the questions that uh, the good citizen brings up in this conversation is, is it safe to say the average person is a bug man, even those who think they're not? Because this person's not just full of blind spots, but actually blindfolded, running through a minefield, constantly blowing off their own legs and actively proud of their situation, arrogantly boastful even. There might even be group dynamics at work here, hive assimilation or conformity, but he says, I also suspect something else is at work. There's another attribute of the bug men that has made healthy conversations almost impossible in our age, and that is self-assured certainty. It becomes impossible to navigate the bowels of any online attention network and not encounter the army of self-assured certains who aren't limited to bug men, but who also claim something completely untrue and stand behind it with such ferocious vigor. Now, this isn't just simply the Dunning-Kruger effect at work, but it's a whole new level of mass formation ignorance combined with pride. And he says these people really seem to be their own worst enemies, leading themselves down a path toward prideful ignorance. Does it follow that the greater the blind spots, the longer one is on the, long, on the wrong path, the more certain they become of the wrong things? 
Now, he says, I'm not referring to the reinforcement of simple confirmation biases, but something greater. It's as if time works on those accepted falsehoods like a kind of jello mold, rendering permanent all the wrong ideas until an individual is cemented to them and habitually or reflexively asserts and defends them. Now, this path could, of course, be filled with illusions, or it uh, could be representations of reality that take them further off course. But if we imagine the accumulation of knowledge and information as stepping stones to further acquisition of more knowledge, each piece a new brush stroke on a canvas, then at some point, one will have a jumbled mess of, mess of postmodernist glob slabbed upon the space, the space where an illustration of a sailboat or a landscape with sheep was supposed to appear if accurately representing the true nature of things. And it seems like there are two ways to react in that situation. You can embrace the courage to admit error, even if for a lifetime, and have the curiosity to retrace your steps till you can objectively recognize where you went so far off course, or they can continue on the path of the bug man and simply continue running through the minefields blindfolded. Kind of an interesting take, right? So what the, what the good citizen is pointing out here is we all simply have to be, we have to accept that we're all going to have some level of blind spots and we're going to be caught off guard at times. And so we should be constantly vigilant of these traps. We should uh, be curious. We should be ready to correct course. And whatever we call the nature of things, whether reality or our perception of it, no matter what we think about it, we often find it tends to have its own plans for us. They say reality is undefeated. It always catches up with those with their own ideas of it. And the harder we deny that, the faster we're caught. Now you understand, this is not an invitation to just go, to run around living your life in a permanent state of indecision. But it's okay to admit the possibility, hey, I may be wrong about this. Or, you know, if I give you an answer to the question you just asked, this is to the best of my understanding. There's no shame in that. But the real test of our character is when we do encounter new truth that requires that we adjust our thinking. Do we adapt it into our lives? Do we assimilate it into our thinking and change our behavior accordingly? Or do we look around to see if anybody noticed and dust ourselves off and hurry away, praying that nobody saw? I can't answer that for you, but I know pride is a tough thing to overcome. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is the place where you can safely gather to revel in wrong think. And it's a necessity if you are looking to have a clear view of what's going on around you, if you're looking for direction in the world today, you got to be willing to stand on your own two feet, claim your mind as sovereign territory, and resist the uh, attempts of others to, uh, to force feed you a particular narrative which you must not depart from. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be uh, cast to the margins of society. If you're okay with marching a little bit out of step with the rest of society, I think you're going to find a lot to consider here. 
And if you do find yourself uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, being being out of step with, with what the mainstream is doing, well, I'd still like you to stick around. You may just find that you have a taste for freedom and a, a degree of courage that you haven't recognized. You've been convinced it doesn't really exist. By the way, I've got great sponsors who make this show possible, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522 if you are moving to anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage can get you the loan you need from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. And best of all, they can do it in a timely fashion. Very important when the real estate market is just as hot as can be. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, I'm going to go for a, for a tough topic here right out of the chute. The more I consider whether NATO has outlived its usefulness, the more I'm thinking this might be the case. Now, I understand. That's, hey, Brian, that's uh, directly contrary to the narrative that we're supposed to be, you know, saying together uh, regarding NATO, regarding Russia. I want to share with you some thoughts from uh, Walter Block, filling in some of the noticeable blanks in the dominant narrative regarding NATO and nuclear war. Walter Block says the Russians are a weird people. For some reason, known only to their bizarre selves, they object to German invasions of their country. Not only that, they had the inexplicable habit of strenuously opposing another such eventuality. Now, one might well have thought otherwise. After all, the Germans bring with them in their wake all sort of salutary benefits, law and order, good government, peace as long as their orders are followed, world-class beer, Wiener schnitzel, sauerkraut, great pretzels, luxury automobiles, magnificent music. It's hard to beat Johann Sebastian Bach. What more could the Russians want? Well, he says any rational country would be more than happy that the Germans offered them such benefits, not once, but twice during the last century. Do you think the Russians were appreciative? No. They're a bunch of ingrates. Instead of being open for a third visit by the Germans, almost their entire foreign policy was dedicated to the principle of never again. And it sometimes seemed that it consisted of little more than to preclude a third benevolent appearance across their borders of their friends, the Germans. Thus, they tried to set up a cordon sanitaire, a buffer zone between them and their German buddies to the west. NATO was set up to confront supposed Soviet expansion in the westward direction. Yes, the USSR did engage in this defensive maneuver aimed at keeping their German friends at bay. But then the Soviet Union ended. And that would have been the perfect time to disband both NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Instead... NATO kept creeping, sometimes jogging, in an eastward direction. Given its past history of invasions, the Russians strongly objected. They've not been behindhand in making this desire, this fervent wish of theirs, remember, they're a weird folk, is explicit. Now, at one time, the Ukrainian government was more or less friendly to its neighbor to the east. But then, thanks to a coup d'etat organized by NATO, guess which country is a prominent member of that organization? If you said Germany, go to the head of the class that democratically elected government was overthrown. It was replaced by one that had an entirely different attitude toward Russia, so much so that it applied to NATO for membership. Now, this would have meant that enemy weapons of mass destruction would have been placed at the very doorstep of Russia. Patience finally wore thin, and Russia said no mas to this policy. Now, if there were any justice in the world, Russia would never have entered the Ukraine. 
Instead, they would have declared war on all the member nations of NATO, all of them without exception. Now, thank God there is no justice in this world. We should thank our lucky stars that Putin is a mensch. Otherwise, the very existence of the entire human race would have been put at high risk. But he says even now the chances of a nuclear Armageddon are perhaps as strong as they ever were since the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, amazingly, the U.S. vociferously objected to the placing of enemy weaponry 90 miles from its shores. What has been the reaction of the U.S. to the present blowback against its decades-long policy? Well, unfortunately, both Democrats and Republicans, with but a few rare exceptions, have been rattling sabers, calling for all sorts of harm to the Russians. Do these people not realize what danger they place on all the rest of us, to say nothing of themselves, their children, and their grandchildren? Have they not yet learned the lesson that a nuclear conflagration can ruin our entire day? And so Walter Block asks, what should happen now if sanity is to return? Peace should once again reign after a complete ceasefire. All troops should return to their home country. No other nation should supply Ukraine with weapons of any type or variety. This country should cease and desist from its attempt to join NATO. That mischievous, nasty, and malicious organization should be disbanded and salt sowed where it once stood. So I guess you know where Walter Block stands on NATO. And, you know... I, I don't know if, if, well, if it comes off as anti-American, I guess I'm just going to, I'll take the, I'll take the, the possibility that uh, this is, this is going to just rub people the wrong way. But why has NATO expanded right up to Russia's doorstep? I mean, it's, I, I, if that makes me a Putin shill for asking that question, I still think it's a legitimate question to ask. Caitlin Johnstone made an observation that I think actually goes well with this, and that is, why is it so, it, it's so crazy that it's just been taken as a given, that it's important and it's necessary for Silicon Valley to actually limit worldwide discourse about a war on the other side of the planet that the U.S. government isn't even officially fighting in. But just yesterday, a number of, uh, of uh, I guess it was like PayPal and other platforms started to uh, to demonetize or refuse to allow people who have used their services to do so because they're not giving the official narrative about Ukraine. And I hope this doesn't sound to you like, well, gee, Brian, are you just indifferent to the suffering of the people in Ukraine? No, not at all. Nor am I indifferent to the suffering of the people in Yemen or Syria or any of the other places where there are horrific wars going on. I'll tell you what... what what I'm resistant to and what I'm pushing back against is the narrative that is being force-fed to us by our own media. And by the way, I don't know if you were aware of this. I mean, you know the U.S. is sending billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to help with Ukraine. Well, in the latest $33 billion package, that is on the backs of the U.S. taxpayers, a good chunk of that $33 billion is being used to uh, secure what are they calling? I'm putting these in air quotes. Independent journalists who can counter Russian disinformation about uh, how things are going in Ukraine. It's information warfare. The U.S. military calls it information warfare. And the U.S. government is funding information warfare in Ukraine. So part of that $33 billion, that's, that's a ministry of propaganda. 
how much more obvious would it have to be that our government is kicking out, you know, billions of dollars or at least a portion of this 33 billion that they're sending in funding to Ukraine simply for the purpose of making sure that our propaganda is heard over other propaganda. And, of course, they're still working very hard to silence unauthorized media voices. It's like Caitlin Johnstone says, this is a profoundly dangerous and frightening point in human history. And, and I know some will disagree, but it really sounds like the U.S. proxy war against Russia in Ukraine is escalating by the day. The, wars, the drums of war beating ever louder against China over the Solomon Islands and Taiwan. And I guess the thing that we have to watch out for is that if you think censorship is bad right now, just wait until this global power grab really gets going. Then you're going to see something like you've never seen before. And this isn't just a matter of, well, Brian, are you going to be a good American and fall in line and wave the flag like everybody else? Why should we be censoring some voices and paying for others? I mean, if you can if you can make the case for me why this is a good thing, why why we can't just, you know, make up our own minds about what's happening and what's really at stake and who has been pushing and interfering here. I mean, I, I'm open to hearing any arguments, but I think it starts with we have to be able to question that narrative. Why is it so important that we throttle these dissenting points of view? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This almost seems so obvious, I'm, I'm nearly hesitant to, to even mention it, but... It's just such a coincidence, right? Elon Musk makes his bid to buy Twitter. Things have changed at Twitter already. Even if I think it was just a freeze on, look, we're, we're not going to change policies any further. We're not going to uh, massage the algorithms and so forth. I notice uh, people who are saying, wow, I have tens of thousands more followers all of a sudden just in the last few days. And there's, there's so much weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth going on at Twitter right now over, well, what's he going to do? What does Elon Musk do, this, this horrible free speech absolutist? And then within a couple of days of it appearing that, uh, okay, it looks like he's secured Twitter or he's, he's buying it and things are going to be changed. There's a new sheriff in town. Suddenly, we have the announcement that the Department of Homeland Security a department that didn't even exist 20 years ago, but today spends $52 billion annually, is about to field a new disinformation governance board. It's a ministry of truth. <laughs> it took them just a couple of days to get that ministry of truth. Oh, you better release this. We're going to be needing it. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says the news comes just days after Twitter accepted Tesla founder Elon Musk's offered to buy Twitter for $44 billion, a move that critics of the deal claimed could unleash disinformation. Oh, dear, what will we do? Musk has been very vocal in his support for free speech. Now, Department of Homeland Security declined to be interviewed by Associated Press, but issued a statement after news broke of the development. This is what the Department of Homeland Security said. 
The spread of disinformation can affect border security, American safety during disasters, and public trust in our democratic institutions. Anybody want to unpack that? It can affect border security, American safety during disasters, and public trust in our democratic institutions. Okay, we got safety, we've got security, oh, and public trust in our democratic institutions. In other words, we don't need people questioning whatever we're doing to them. Now, John Miltimore wonders, is this a ministry of truth? He says, perhaps naturally, the revelation that government had created a new, a new board to fight disinformation prompted a slew of 1984 comparisons, especially since it came so soon after Musk's purchase of Twitter. One observer quipped, Elon Musk buys Twitter to save free speech, and days later, President Biden announces a ministry of truth. It's like we're living through an Ayn Rand-George Orwell novel mashup. Actually, there's a lot of tweets that uh, that seem to be uh, pushing on this. I know the 1984 references are a little stale, but the government creating an actual ministry of truth is a little too on the nose for me. That's from Jason Howerton. Jonathan Turley, Biden's new disinformation governance board, is a telling replacement for the corporate censorship system. Now Clinton is looking to, the, to, to Europeans to censor social media while Biden is turning to a type of ministry of truth. That's from Jonathan Turley. Greg Price says the government is so afraid of Elon Musk owning Twitter that they literally created a real-life ministry of truth less than a week after he bought it. Now, for those unfamiliar with George Orwell's masterpiece, the Ministry of Truth is the Propaganda and Censorship Department of Oceania, the fictional setting for Orwell's dystopia. Known as Mini-True in Newspeak, the name Ministry of Truth is a misnomer. Like all the departments in 1984, that name reflects the opposite of what the government actually does. So the book's protagonist, Winston Smith, learns this in the second half of 1984. Quote, Even the names of the four ministries by which we are governed exhibit a sort of impudence in their deliberate reversal of the facts. The Ministry of Peace concerns itself with war. The Ministry of Truth with lies. The Ministry of Love with torture. And the Ministry of Plenty with starvation. These contradictions are not accidental, nor do they result from ordinary hypocrisy. They are deliberate exercises in doublethink. For it is only by reconciling contradictions that power can be retained indefinitely. End quote. So Smith, who works at the Ministry of Truth, realizes the Ministry of Truth is not in the least bit interested in truth. Its use of propaganda is overt, as is its use of banal slogans designed to confuse and humiliate the people of Oceania. On the exterior of the Ministry of Truth building are three-party slogans, War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Inside the structure, problematic documents are incinerated, dropped down a memory hole where they are conveniently forgotten. Now, John Miltimore says one might be tempted to laugh off comparisons between a disinformation governance board and the propaganda department in Orwell's classic work. After all, we're talking about a novel. But he says this would be mistaken, however. For starters, 1984 is indeed a fictional work, but it was inspired by the authoritarian regimes and ideologies Orwell witnessed firsthand. A one-time socialist who observed the fighting in the Spanish Civil War, a conflict between fascists and communists, Orwell became a budding libertarian who became disillusioned with collectivism. In fact, Orwell makes it very clear that 1984 was inspired by communism. 
He told Sidney Sheldon, who purchased the stage rights to the book, 1984 was based chiefly on communism because that's the dominant form of totalitarianism. But he says, I was trying chiefly to imagine what communism would be like if it were firmly rooted in the English-speaking countries and was no longer a mere extension of the Russian foreign office. Now, Stalin's regime was not the only totalitarian regime to utilize propaganda and censorship, of course. Joseph Goebbels, the chief propagandist for the Nazi party, is perhaps the single most infamous wielder of propaganda in human history. And, of course, the Nazis were famous for their, or infamous for their book burning. The Chinese Communist Party uses propaganda and censorship to such great effect today that scholars say it's difficult to even know what actually happened in the country over the last century. Historian Sun Pidong said, At a time when censorship is a part of everyday experience of the Chinese people, even few historians actually know all the history of the party. It's hard to get hold of party materials, party history materials. As a history researcher nowadays, it's even harder to know what the past 100 years has really been about. John Miltimore says, this is why Americans should be concerned that the U.S. government, nearly two and a half centuries after it was founded, is suddenly in the business of rooting out disinformation. Humans will always disagree over what is true. Descartes' first principle, cogito ergo sum, posited that the only thing we can know with total certainty is, I think, therefore I am. And he says it doesn't take a philosopher to see that a lot of stuff one finds online is dreck, so it shouldn't surprise us that misinformation in various forms and to various degrees is rampant online. But history shows that no one wields misinformation and propaganda with greater effectiveness or at greater cost than government. And his point is, Orwell understood this, but Americans would do well to heed his warning. And this is, truth be told, one of the reasons why I do what I do. What exactly is that you do, do, Brian? Well, I am an enormous pain in the rear to uh, any number of people on a given day who want to believe that things are, for the most part, okay, but maybe just a little bit weird. And I'm here to, uh, to be a voice of warning, among other things, that it's not just a little passing weirdness. This is not just some transitory trend of, you know, somebody's feeling uppity in government and, you know, trying to flex on us. My goal is to inspire people to question and think and really give the benefit of the doubt to your own principles before whatever the the media is telling you or whatever your government is telling you. I think we've safely passed that that threshold where it's not just, well, yeah, they may misrepresent misrepresent things or try to shade things in a way that just, you know, appears favorable, you know, to, to them and to their situation. No, I think we've crossed that uh, threshold to where we're, we are fully in the territory of this is full-on propaganda. This is all about keeping you from the truth as opposed to empowering you with the truth. And the important thing to remember here is if you want the truth, it's something you're going to have to go and get for yourself. It is not going to be handed to you by someone in authority. And they're also never going to give you permission to find out the reasons why they're lying to you or that perhaps you should reconsider obeying them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. In fact, I encourage you to click on the link I provided my sponsor links in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. HSL Ammo is your source for high-quality, new and remanufactured ammo in popular calibers. It's just a great way to turn your money into skill. And if you want skill at arms, then it's going to take some ammunition to make that happen. Do business with HSL Ammo. They'll appreciate it. I will appreciate it. And yes, you're helping my sponsor in turn helps me to do what I do. Well, you probably noticed that uh, the people who seem most concerned about tolerance always seem to be the ones who are least capable of demonstrating it. I've got a great article here from Kent McManigal from everythingvoluntary.com. Tolerance pushers most intolerance. And he says, tolerance has a proper time and place, but this time and place isn't all the time, nor is it everywhere. Nor does everything have to be tolerated. Even the most tolerant person won't tolerate everything. Now, he unpacks this a little bit further by saying, look, I was always a fairly tolerant person. I was never too interested in making someone conform to what I thought they should do. As long as they didn't try to force their ways on me or on my friends, I didn't even try to stop them from doing whatever they were doing, even if I thought it was icky. Now, he says, as I've grown older, I've grown even more tolerant. You do you, as long as you give others the same respect. And this is where I draw the line. As long as you give others the same respect. Those who won't respect others, he says, won't consider me very tolerant. Now, Kent McManigal says there are certain things that shouldn't be tolerated. There are things that are wrong to tolerate. Violations of life, liberty, and property are behaviors I'm unwilling to tolerate no matter who is committing them. And he says, as I've aged, I've grown more tolerant of most things, but less tolerant of some things. With each passing year, I grow less and less tolerant of those who bully others with any form of violence or threats of violence, including threatening others with government and its legislation. He says, I simply have no use for such people. Trying to control the peaceful, mutually consensual behavior of others is a disgusting habit. And this bullying includes censorship, whether committed by government or corporations or an individual. Ken McManigal says to me, freedom of speech is non-negotiable. The freedom to learn from unpopular speech is why speech must be free. And the censors can spout all the justifications they want, but limiting people or limiting what people are allowed to read or hear, it's it's not a noble thing to do. He says, the strangest thing I see about tolerance these days is how those who push for tolerance the loudest are the most intolerant. Not intolerant of things that actually harm others, things no one should tolerate, but intolerant of mere opinions they don't like. They commonly use threats and censorship to prevent anyone from hearing opinions or facts they don't like. This is how you know they are wrong. Actually, this is how you know that they know they are wrong. They can't allow the other side to be heard or their narrative collapses. Censorship exposes the weakness of their position, and they seem to believe you won't notice, but he says you will now. This just seemed like such a timely commentary, given how much emphasis is being placed on, well, we've got to you know, make sure that we're doing content moderation, and of course we're trying to keep a very close eye on what's happening here to, to make sure that nobody is saying things or thinking things they shouldn't, you know, fighting disinformation. 
Okay, content moderation, fighting disinformation. These uh, these are official policies. And now we actually have some kind of an information czar that has been named by the Biden administration. It doesn't change the fact that these are nothing more than euphemisms for censorship. Probably focus group tested words. Well, which one do you respond more positively with? uh, Fighting disinformation or content moderation? But they mean the same thing. Someone wants to decide what you can or cannot see, read, hear, consider. And I know people sometimes get uncomfortable with the idea, well, Brian, if you're going to be such a free speech absolutist, you know, that's uh, that's going to open the door for a lot of scary things. And I, I'll admit there's some speech out there that is ugly and frightening. But I would much rather live in a world where you and I get to choose for ourselves whether or not we will consider that speech. We're not bound, you know, by the virtue of the fact that, well, someone is saying it, you know, that we have to listen and we have to agree. But it's essential that we don't allow somebody else to tell us what you are allowed to consider in your pursuit of truth. This is like being a little bit pregnant. Well, look, you either are or you aren't. Either your ideas are being censored or they aren't. But you have to be the one to make that decision. And I, I get that's that's so absolutist why you're either with us or you're with the terrorist. I don't know if it's quite like that, but it's not something you can outsource and still maintain your own freedom of will and freedom of choice. So take it serious. And when government starts suggesting, well, we need someone to rein in this disinformation, just see it for what it is. These are people who have to lie, have to deceive in order to get others to go along with them. And those dissenting voices that they're so eager to silence, they're not antisocial, bomb-throwing anarchists out there trying to destroy everything around them. They're people who are asking the kind of questions that would cause others to go, wait a minute. Why are we lining up and doing that? Why am I putting on this mask? Why am I socially distancing? Why am I closing my business and being told that I'm unessential. It's all about control. If you want to control people, you got to be able to control how they think. That starts with controlling the words or ideas they're allowed to consider. All right, I'm going to shift gears here real quick. Got time to, to share a real quick uh, brief gem of, of information from Dr. Jordan Peterson. He asks the question, what is the antidote to the suffering and malevolence of life, the highest possible goal? That's willingness to adopt the maximum degree of responsibility. That's the prerequisite pursuit of your highest possible goal. So if you look around you and you see suffering, you see malevolence, and you think, well, okay, what's the antidote here? Jordan Peterson says the antidote is the highest possible goal, but in order to pursue that highest possible goal, you have to be willing to embrace the maximum degree of responsibility. Now, he says you might object. Why should I shoulder all that burden? It's nothing but sacrifice, hardship, and trouble. But what makes you so sure that you don't want something heavy to carry? He says you positively need to be occupied with something weighty, deep, profound, and difficult. Then when you wake up in the middle of the night and the doubts crowd in, you have some defense. And this is what you can tell yourself. 
For all my flaws, which are manifold, at least I am doing this. At least I'm taking care of myself. At least I am of use to my family and to the other people around me. At least I'm moving, stumbling upward under the load which I have determined to carry. That's very stoic, right? I mean, I don't know if you've read some of the great stoic philosophers. This seems very much in keeping with how they see the world. But I agree with him, and and I I try to put this into practice, too. When I start feeling the weight of the world crushing down on me, and trust me, after, after a full day of looking through current events and various news headlines and seeing the trends, and some of the stuff I see is really disturbing. Like it, it just, it's, it, it's hard to find the words for it because it just seems to be coming at us from so many different angles and it's all part and parcel of the, the crisis cycle that we're in at this moment. But to be involved with something, even something that's difficult, that causes me to, to strain and to, to sacrifice and to, to lose sleep. There's comfort in in knowing that you're doing it. And this doesn't mean you have to have some massive crusade. I'm going to save the whole world and, you know, look at me go. Truth be told, the kind of battles here that uh, Jordan Peterson is is referring to most often are not going to take place out there, you know, in public. People won't be able to look at you and and immediately ascertain, oh, yeah, yeah, look there. That person is really, you know, fighting a, a great battle. For the most part, people won't know unless they're very close to you and maybe you've confided in them. But it's a real battle nonetheless. And I'm just here to encourage you that uh, it's worth it. Whatever price you're paying to be better today than you were yesterday, it's worth it. And whatever you're doing to just live as a decent human being, rather than you know taking all the pain to make sure everybody knows, look, I'm wearing the ribbon, I've got the right uh, flag on my avatar on social media, Look at my bumper stickers. You can see I'm a good person, right? Screw that. You don't need to be, you know, making some broad uh, outward manifestation to people that uh, look what a good person I am. People can tell just by looking at you. People can tell by the way you treat them. It's like we used to joke around, you know, when you see the men working sign out there by some road construction. Oh, where I come from, we didn't need a sign. We could tell just by watching them. It's kind of that way with being a good person. You don't need a sign. People can tell just by looking at how you live your life. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to uh, lifesavingfood.com. I'm looking at some pretty disturbing trends in terms of what would appear to be approaching manufactured food crises. Now, you're not seeing this uh, widespread at this time, and I have a sense that uh, when people start to realize, ooh, something is really not right, it's going to hit pretty quickly. So the time to get yourself stocked up, the time to have a reserve built up, is while things are still looking pretty normal and before people start getting that sense of, oh, this doesn't look right. Hopefully that's as gently as I, I can put it, but uh, the time to act is now. If you've been putting it off, waiting for, well, you know, when, when I know that it's the right time, I'll know it's the right time. It's the right time. 
Life-saving foods is one of those options that you can exercise to, to sock away food with a 25-year shelf life. Prices are still decent. Availability is still decent. That may not always be the case. So acting sooner than later, probably in your best interest. There's a convenient link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. I don't know if you caught the president's recent slip about how kids in the classroom aren't really their parents' children. I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, and, and I, I, w- I would play the audio clip for you, but it's... Uh, with, with Biden's uh, mental lapses, it, it was it was hard to, to listen to. But essentially what he said is, well, teachers, you know, when those kids are in their classroom, they're not somebody else's kids, they're your kids. And I know that uh, for, for parents who are concerned about... Uh, you know, the, whose child is it? That's like, whoa, that sends a shiver up your spine. And it's revealing. It, it, it shows that uh, bureaucratic collectivist mindset. Oh, the children are all ours. They're all ju- they're the children of the village, the, the whole village to raise the children. Thank you, Hillary, for helping us. Well, Laura Wellington has an article on AmericanThinker.com. And she says what's even worse is what's happening with parents' health care and children's privacy. So if you think it's bad in the classroom, well, pull up a chair and, and listen to this. How our nation handles health care when it comes to children covered by their parents' health insurance is a joke, says Laura Wellington. We pay for children's health care, yes, yet we must ask permission from them in order to become privy to any test results or conversations that children have with their physicians and alternate health care professionals from age 18 on. Now, she says, let me say it again. We pay for their health care. Alternatively, we're required to sign a parental proxy to obtain test results for children younger than 12. How is that right? Now, she says, certainly if children are off on their own, paying fully for the entirety of their lives, including their health care and health insurance, I can understand them having earned the right to complete privacy. But being able to leave the parent out of this part of their lives while at the same time expecting the parent to foot health care, health insurance, and all related costs is gobstopping and simply wrong in my book. She says children should not have a total right to privacy because they are children. Now, this ridiculous setup impedes the ability of the parent to help their child under normal, normal circumstances, but especially in situations where kids are emotionally or mentally compromised and vulnerable. Parental understanding, input, and oversight shouldn't stop until their kids are off the family payroll. Health insurance companies, as well as health care in general, should have no obligation to maintain children's privacy when their parents are footing the bill for their lives. Their first obligation should be to the parent in these cases. Placing the privacy of the child ahead of that of the parent paying the expenses of that child puts that child in harm's way. And it prevents parents from doing their jobs to keep our children healthy and safe. And it opens the door to mismanagement of children by health care workers who are simply too trusting and enamored by degrees. She says, I've seen the results of such mismanagement firsthand. And to unravel unravel that kind of mess requires years of heartache, work, and lost time. When all it would have taken to prevent this is the experience and wisdom of one parent to stand in the way in the first place then who is left to fix the situation created? The parents, because they love their kids. Forced to wait to see what the ultimate fallout will be, we must then come to the rescue, pick up the pieces, and swallow our words while doing it for the good of getting the job done. 
Now, she says the entire system, healthcare and health insurance, is nothing more than a money grab on the whole. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful exceptions toiling away in the medical community. But the structure within within which they must work, as well as that which parents and kids with which they must contend, has little to do with the health and welfare of patients and families. Quite the opposite. Separate and medicate is the philosophy behind this structure, without exception. And in the cases of parents and children, it continues to the detriment of both. Laura Wellington says, Yesterday I had to fill out a parental proxy to obtain the results of a COVID-19 test my 12-year-old took at a local hospital facility. Yep, I couldn't have the results sent to me unless I filled out that piece of paper. And yet, I pay for his health insurance, his health care, as well as everything else making up his life. She says, I gave birth to him and have taken care of him every step of the way. And I was required to ask permission by this hospital facility to see my son's COVID test results. The parent who took him to get the test in the first place. And she says, if that isn't it is idiocy, I don't know what is. And Laura Wellington says, I'm, I know I'm not the only parent who feels this way. When was it that those who serve us became the ones who dictated to us what we can and can't do with regards to our children and their health? It used to be that health care and even health insurance companies supported parents in the raising of their kids. Used to be, that is. She goes, I don't know what the current system we have in place is, but it definitely doesn't aspire to help parents parent rather than help parents fail their kids. That'd make for some interesting discussion around the campfire, wouldn't you say? Definitely something worth considering. And I don't know where you would draw the line, <clears throat> but as a parent, I sincerely hope that you're the kind of parent who looks at uh, your stewardship with that child or your children as something that goes beyond just your relationship with the state. As something that, uh, you know, is makes you directly accountable to God because I think that's that's where people really start to take it seriously. And I remember when my daughter was born, that uh, that sense of gravity of like, wow, you have this is the first real responsibility you've ever felt in your life, and it's never left, and it never will. At the time, it seemed a little bit overwhelming, but now it's like, no, I'm grateful for it. It's what binds me to my kids. It's what makes them and my grandkids, you know, a, a part of my life. So I've got this link to Laura Wellington's article. Again, it's in the show notes. Just one quick thing here as, as we close things up. Came across this article on lewrockwell.com. We are human. We are free. The great reset must be defeated. And I thought this was, we are human. We are free. Is Actually, it's a website. We are human. We are free.org. Some ideas they have about what you can do to push back against elite control and resist the forces of fear and dehumanization, that what they're trying to do here is create mass civil resistance to undermine the power of the criminal global elite and their great reset, right? You'll own nothing and you'll love it or you'll, you'll be happy. And to regain the freedoms that make our lives worth living. They say, because we are human, we are free to make choices. The time has come to choose. Are we on the side of love, life and freedom or fear, self-imprisonment, and tyranny. Just a few suggestions here. Things you can do. Refuse COVID-19 injections, tests, and passports. Big Pharma is not honest or safe. Choose natural health. 
Don't wear masks or social distance. Staying human is more important than living in fear. Don't buy 5G or smart devices or systems. Resist the fourth industrial revolution. Defend our humanity. I like this next one. Pay with cash and switch to community-owned banks. Grow your own food. Join local trading schemes. Or keep your small business open in lockdown. Buy from small businesses. Don't use contact tracing QR codes. Boycott corporate and government media that misinform and censor. Choose uncensored media and social media. Okay, this one's a tough one. Don't pay COVID-19-related fines. Risk becoming a prisoner of conscience. Seek support. That one takes courage, but I think it would be very effective. And last but not least, wear an orange armband, scarf, or ribbon to show solidarity with the movement. Now, some of those you might agree with. Some of them you might say, yeah, that's really not, orange is not my color. But there's a lot of that that uh, could make a very noticeable difference. It's, I mean, there's are small ways, but nonetheless effective ways of not participating in whatever the system is doing to try to fit you for your straitjacket. And I think there's got to be a good feeling in knowing that uh, you're not just going along because, well, everybody else is. I'll just keep my head down and my eyes on the floor and try not to draw attention to myself. I know things are moving so incrementally right now that it seems like, come on, Brian, it couldn't really be that bad. I think we're deceiving ourselves, though, if we ignore the direction that we're going right now. This is The Brian Hyde Show.